The chance to travel the world while providing medical care to underserved people sounds like an enticing option for many healthcare providers. I'm Dr. John Russell, your host for Clinician's Roundtable. Joining me today is fellow ReachMD host, OBGYN, OBGYN educator, and fellow ReachMD host, Dr. Amy Mackey. And we're talking about our experiences working on medical missions, and we've gone on some medical missions together. So Amy, what drew you to go on a medical mission? I think the thing that drew me most for a medical mission is the thing that drew me into medicine in the first place. It's the opportunity to provide care to patients who need care. And on a medical mission, you are doing just that for patients who are in very resource-poor areas. And so the gratification of doing mission work is really fantastic. That plus the travel. It's nice to see other places. How about you? A couple years back, we had at the hospital, we had Dr. James Robinski, who was the head of Doctors Without Borders. And it was so inspiring. And certainly what we do, we're not putting ourselves that much in harm's way, although Honduras is in a bit of a pickle. But it certainly was inspiring to have that amount of selflessness. And I think a lot of the problems with American medicine is we don't always have that sense of selflessness, even though we give a lot to our patients. It was a chance to do that. Yeah, I think there's a lot of restrictions that we feel practicing in the United States that you don't have when you go to a country like Honduras in the electronic medical records, the fear of litigation. Those were some of the striking differences. The patients, you could take care of them without having to jump through a lot of hoops to get the approvals for the surgery and and the insurance approvals and things like that. You just did what you thought you needed to do. Although certainly when we go on it, has not been this effortless type thing. It's not like we just show up with some suntan lotion and a bag. (laughs) There certainly is a lot of work behind the scenes. Definitely. And I am very grateful to Seth Newman for really pulling this all together for us to be able to go on such an amazing trip. Yeah, and really there's so much work behind the scene before we show up because we really end up taking everything. Right. It's also gathering the equipment that we take, the medications that we purchase, but also after we leave, especially from the hospital side, having people there in those countries to provide post-operative care to the patients that we operate on is something that has to be arranged ahead of time, too. So usually a little bit of this division of work when we go to these different countries, you're usually part of the hospital team and you're doing L&D stuff, you're doing some surgical cases, and I'm going out into villages and, and seeing some things. What's some of the big differences in going into a hospital in the underserved part of the world? What's different? What struck you so differently walking into the hospital versus being in an American hospital? The age of the facilities is the first thing I think that hits you as you're walking in and the lack of repairs that have been done. And as you go into the operating rooms, the sheer lack of equipment, resources, and having patients having to bring their own suture materials to have a surgery is something that was really surprising to me. Or bringing in a mayo jar to put their specimen in. And then if they chose to have their specimen analyzed, they'd have to take their specimen jar to the pathology department, pay for that up front, and then the pathologist would read it and render an opinion for us. So that's what struck me. But I'm sure in the villages you ran into a lot of I, I think one of the things when we dropped you guys off the hospital that the one ambulance had no had no tires and had no wheels and was up on cinder blocks. But going out into the villages, I think some of the things that kind of struck me and often the level of poverty is something we just don't have a sense of here in the United States. And, you know, poor people in the United States would be fairly well off people in some of these some of these countries. So I think just poverty to a level and then seeing things that you just don't see anymore. 
you know, seeing club feet, seeing people who had polio, seeing diseases that don't really exist anymore, and a little bit of just kind of desperation that people would travel two hours to come and see us when really we weren't having that life-sustaining, life-changing bit of intervention that we were going to make on that particular day. Did you feel when you were there that you made impact on individual lives? I've been interested in this because if you're part of the operating room team and you remove a very large fibroid or you help someone with a delivery, you've made, you know, you've closed your circle. Where I think when people do episodic missions, and I know there was a study in one of the family medicine journals that show the people who make the trip are actually probably more impacted than the patients that we see. So I think it probably changes our our hearts a little bit more than the people that we see. And if someone is sick that particular week, perhaps we help them out that particular week. But, you know, even if we showed up with a month's worth of diabetes medicine, that only solves that person's problem for a week. So why do you keep going back? I think for a lot of reasons. I think it's it makes me feel good about my job again. I take residence every year when I go. I know you take residence as well. So I think it's a great way to role model and, and to give back a little bit. I think it's, as a parent, I think it's important to let the world know, and let our children know that it is a big world out there and we can really, you can make a difference. And certainly it's changed my opinion of Honduras. It's changed my opinion of the Dominican Republic, which is much more than Punta Cana, right? right. And <laughs> so I think when people hear we're going to some of these places, I think people think that we're going to be uh, drinking Mai Tais and, and doing some of this stuff. And it's, it is hard, hard, hard work. I do know there are some organizations that, you know, are more about sustainability. So right. there are programs like Shoulder to Shoulder where you can sign up for a week. And, you know, we've worked with a Luke World Mission is the group that we've worked with. And they have had other groups from different hospitals that have come in and filled in some of those other weeks. But there's a lot of time to fill and, and the need doesn't end. Right. What do you think about the concept of the people who go on these mission trips providing health care for the country as a means of sustaining health care? When you look at least primary care in Honduras, primary care, a lot of it was just delivered by what would be our equivalent of fourth-year medical students. And the 17% of the people in that particular country have some kind of access to health care through insurance, and the rest of the people are just kind of left out. And it, it really seems like a flawed plan is we would go to some of these villages and we were the only doctor in there and we would be the only doctor there for a whole year. How do you think if you really had to say OB care is very equivalent probably to the 1920s, you know, in the United well, States? I wasn't maybe. practicing in the 1920s. But, but something, <laughs> something, something that's very, very not technology-based and things like that. How about things like sterile technique and antibiotics? What well, did you notice? Well, it's a little notice? hard to do sterile technique when you have no running water. And certainly Purell is a luxury that they can't afford. So hand-washing was not something that we saw clinicians do between patients at all. To operate, we had bottled water brought in, and people would pour it over our hands so that we could scrub for that. But the basic things that you would expect as far as sterility were a challenge. The drapes that we use in the United States are impervious to water. The drapes here, 
had holes in them frequently because they had been used so commonly. The laparotomy sponges we used to take blood out of the operative field would be washed and reused the next time. So much of what we use as disposables, they would reuse over and over again out of necessity. The bovi pads, which we stick on people's legs for cautery, they would put gel on it because it no longer sticks and lay it underneath them so there was contact. So there's so many little things that we take for granted. And you think about how much waste we created for them, too. That actually created quite a bit of challenge for them to handle all of our disposables because they didn't know what to do with it afterwards. I think some of the other things that really stand out to me is how much soda, at least in Honduras, how much soda advertisement there was. And we would drive kind of hours away from where we were staying near San Pedro Sula, and we would be two hours away in some distant villages, and there would be Coke and Pepsi signs painted on the sign of buildings that could barely stand up. And the penetrance of soda was really shocking to me. And there was such abject poverty, but there was still advertisements. And I found that to be amazingly – did that stand out to you? Yeah, yeah it really was pretty remarkable where you saw Pepsi-Cola and Coca-Cola on corrugated metal that was the side of somebody's house. And you saw that all over the place. And, you know, we think about sodas in the United States and the sugar content and, and how that's contributed to some of our obesity challenges and diabetes and and think about what it is that they have access to. And, you know, even just clean water, I think, is, is a challenge for them as well. But it is pretty amazing how much you see advertisements there in places you wouldn't expect for soda. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD. I'm Dr. John Russell, and I'm speaking with Dr. Amy Mackey about medical mission work. You know, one of the things that also stood out to me is last year when we were in the DR, the interns didn't own stethoscopes. <laughs> and I find that really amazing is we had two interns that went out with us as translators, and they didn't own stethoscopes. And it was, it was like, how do you track diseases? And they have CBCs. So oftentimes they would track the arc of someone's illness with regard to laboratory stuff and not necessarily clinically. I actually really enjoyed being in the Dominican Republic with the medical students and the residents that they had there because they were so eager to look and observe and participate and ask questions about what we were doing and why we were doing it. And I was pretty actually surprised at their basic level of knowledge, that they had a very good sense of disease processes. It was more the resources to be able to treat them and to follow them. But I thought at least their education was actually pretty good for where they were. And that's when you start seeing them make do with the things that they have, where you use the DeWalt drill in the orthopedic surgery, and you have to go and buy blood down the street at the blood bank if you need it, because the hospital doesn't have it to give. One of the cases that was really amazing that I remember is there was a little girl in Honduras who was going to be amputated. She was going to have her heel amputated because she had an osteo. And one of the orthopedists who went with us, we were asked to go and see this particular young lady who was up on the wards. And he was like, no, this she doesn't need an amputation. We can go in there and clean this out a little bit. And I think sometimes when places are so resource poor, they are going to take a Civil War type approach to public health right. and and it's you know doing amputations are cheap and quick and easy and certainly that wouldn't have been the best thing that would have been for this little girl i found that working with one of the OBGYN physicians and surgeons in honduras that 
the surgery that they would do would be different than what we would do in the United States because their goal was to fix the immediate problem and not get themselves in trouble. So doing an extensive dissection where you may end up getting into the bladder or into the bowel would have very different ramifications for somebody in Honduras than it would in the United States. We can fix the bowel. We can fix the bladder here. We have specialists who we can call in to help us with surgery when the dissection gets hard. But they don't have that there. And so they may not dissect out the entire ovary in an endometriosis case because they're worried that if they get into the bowel that they don't have the antibiotics to treat the infection that can come from it. So they do modify what they do, and it's not really a reflection on a lack of knowledge or interest in patient care or outcome. It's more understanding the environment that they're working in and modifying what they do to try to do the best that they can with what they have. So we saw a little girl kind of late in the day in one particular place. I think we'd seen like 600 people on this particular day, and it was 103 degrees in the room that we were working in. And this little girl came in, and she had about a 105 temperature, and she had all these marks around her neck. And we were trying to figure out, and one of my partners was seeing her, and we were trying to figure out, you know, does this look like child abuse? What's going on with this particular girl? And finally, through translators, what we figured out is they thought she had worms, and they treated worms by taking hot garlic and putting kind of hot garlic around this this young girl's neck. Eventually, we figured out a ride for her to get down the hospital, and she got admitted, and she ended up having dengue, a form of dengue fever. But some of the treatments, we had, saw a woman who had a large ulcer on her neck, around on her leg, excuse me, and her family was convinced because she had walked by a, a cemetery. Um. You know, that's why she had. So, so some of the things I think... The resources aren't the same as in the United States when everyone's going to pull up something like a WebMD or something like that to answer their clinical question. Are there any cases that stand out to you? Oh, there's plenty of cases, and it's hard to pick one or two. But I think one that I was involved with was a C-section that we performed. We had been in the operating room most of the day, and the physician had decided a C-section was going to be needed for this patient. And because there's no monitoring, when I delivered the baby, the baby was blue, apneic, floppy and I wasn't sure if there was even a heartbeat and it was a realization that without the monitoring you kind of get what you get at the end of the day and Jerry Cleary one of our neonatologists who went on the trip was there and he didn't really have a lot of tools in his bag either to help with the resuscitation so he was bagging the baby and I think they had to do some chest compressions but the baby responded really well fortunately and Jerry became the hero of the delivery room which was great But it was a real difference between what we do here in the United States and what happens in Honduras. It also reminds me of a time when Jerry and I and one of my residents who acted as a translator at this point in time went to a pharmacy down the road because Jerry wanted to make TPN or total parenteral nutrition for a baby that wasn't doing well. So he's at this pharmacy with a man standing in front with a machine gun because there's narcotics in this pharmacy, so they have to be very careful. And we're standing in this pharmacy feeling like we're being watched by everybody who's walking by. And he's buying lipids and amino acids and enzymes and protein and whatever else he needed to create this TPN formula to give this baby that wasn't thriving in their nursery. So that was an interesting trip. I know Seth was not happy with us for going on that trip. (laughs) We came back. And I think one of the things is our model, we go with a big team. So we have OB and neonatology and surgery and orthopedics and, and family medicine, and we go with a lot of different people. I've really kind of felt if I was giving someone a recommendation to do some mission work, 
I think there's a certain kind of safety in going with some colleagues and to do that as opposed to solo OB finding a place to go or solo family doctor to go is joining a bit of a larger group, I think, at least gives you some colleagues to kind of bounce things off of and things like that. So that would be one of my things is to, if you're going to do it, try to find a bigger group to be part of. It doesn't necessarily need to be from your hospital. And I do think if you have a group at your particular hospital somewhere in the United States and you want to put a team together, there certainly are organizations that are looking for people who want to donate their time and their energy. And I, it certainly has changed me. How has it changed you? I think it's certainly given me an appreciation of what we have. And it makes me grateful to be in the United States with the resources that we have. And I really tried hard by bringing my son last year to impart that on my son and that we have a responsibility to the people here in the United States. But our responsibility really is to care for people and all people, not just those in the United States. And it would be great to be able to do more of this kind of work. But right now with kids, it's, it's a little bit harder to travel all the time. Well, Amy, thank you for joining me. We have an upcoming mission trip, so maybe uh, we'll have some adventures that. we can talk about in the future. And thank you for joining me today on Clinician's Roundtable as we talked about our mission work. Thanks for having me, John. <laughs>